This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I'm super excited for today's guest because we just had a, a riveting conversation, I would say, with Dr. Ann McAfee. She is today's guest. She's a phenomenal staple in the city of Vancouver. And it goes without saying, a real coup for this show. That's right. It was great having Ann McAfee on the show. And let's just run through some of the accolades, accomplishments of Ann here. Let's uh, do it. I'll okay. try to be as exhaustive as I can. It's a, it's a hard intro to make, but one, she is a PhD from UBC Sauter School of Business in City Planning and Land Urban Economics, or Urban Land Economics, I should say. In 1974, she was appointed Vancouver's first housing planner. Which is kind of incredible. That is incredible. In 94, she was appointed co-director of planning with none other than fan favorite, past guest of the show, Larry Beasley. Right. Uh, And Anne McAfee was the other side of Vancouverism. Yes, Exactly. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, I didn't understand. I didn't know that. Um, but Larry's book was more the design side. The design side. Yeah. And kind of the, I think the, she kind of goes into this, but the negotiation on the business side as well was where Larry focused, where Anne right. was kind of on focused on a different kind of the analytics analysis. Side. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Heavy analysis. Can I just say something here? Sure. She retires from the city in 2006. Yes. She establishes, much like Larry Beasley, a consulting firm, travels throughout the world, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, the Ukraine, Philippines, China. She's everywhere consulting about urban planning. Right. 
Since then, she's on Canada's National Housing Council. She still sits and serves on Canada's National Housing Council. I mean, this is a huge deal. I'm going to throw two more things in there. Oh, my God. Teaches at UBC as an adjunct professor and fellow of the Canadian Institute of Planners. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot we're leaving out, but we get to it in this conversation. There is so many reasons we should be excited to have Anne on the program today. Well, here's just to spell this out. You know, Anne's got a lot to say on the state of Vancouver, the state of Metro Vancouver, housing affordability, the challenges with climate change, you know, everything. Obviously, this runs that gamut. But here's kind of a really interesting thing. She became the first housing planner after having a PhD from UBC in 74. That means in 2024, if I'm doing the math right, that's 50 years. Okay, so we're a couple years off 50 years. Since 1974, think of the transformation Vancouver's went through. So her career has basically started before what a lot of people, where a lot of people would argue kind of the new global center stage, the global stage, Vancouver. Yeah, that kind of came out of Expo. She started well before that and was planning at the top levels of the city throughout that entire process. So it's yeah. it's kind of a, an amazing history as well. Was Expo the catalyst for that change? We find out to today. Her. We put that to her. But that's a, that's an exciting conversation. Well, here, here's another thing. Burnabyism. Anne lives close to, I don't think she, she I think she says this, she lives close to Burquitlam, yes. uh, Lowheed Town Center, where there's massive changes underway. We talk about that, the positives, negatives, what they're getting right, what they're getting wrong, what that means for the the region as a whole. So it's such such a great, great conversation for the show. Absolutely. Can't wait to dig into this conversation with Anne, Matt. But before we get to that, we got to say we're sponsored this week and every week by Oakland Realty. That's right, Oakland Realty. This is our brokerage, best brokerage in the city. If you're a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change in the real estate industry as a realtor, I would highly recommend Oakland Realty. Head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP2020. That is oakland.com slash join, type in VRP2020. You'll meet with Michael Morgan and the gang. And there's also an incentive for typing that in to their website. Huge incentive, big surprise. And the real surprise is what is going on behind the scenes at Oakland. Incredible yeah. place to work. Oakland actually is having, coming up soon, I just got an email about that today. Ryan Sirhant, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Ryan Sirhan, Sirhant, Sirhant. Is the T what? silent? I have no idea. Well, the, the good news is you'll get to ask him when he's on some he's, Zoom call in a couple of weeks he's, for uh, the Oakland he's, community. He's presenting to the Oakland community. I think he's the, um, I don't watch any of those million dollar listing shows, but he's the New York. He's, uh, he's a big deal there. And he's also though, in terms of just the type of business he does in the real estate community, it's just enormous. He's yeah. also written some great books. You've read them. He's written, I would say one decent book. The second book. Hopefully he doesn't listen to yeah, the Vancouver no, Real Estate he absolutely podcast. does not. No, he doesn't. But uh, anyways, that's pretty special that a brokerage would bring in a name like that. No to kidding. Speak to their no agents. kidding. Oakland.com slash join type in VRP 2020. That was a long Oakland plug. What else do we got before <laughs> before we cut to our chat with Ann? Well, there's one more thing I was thinking. This is coming out right before the long weekend. September long, Labor Day long weekend is always, in at least in our world, is a big weekend because the last couple of weeks really kind of slow right down, right. which is, I would say, the case this year. Come Tuesday next week, 
It's like the bell rings and back to school, but back to real life, the market usually just takes off like a rocket. Yes. It's the big question this year, of course, is inventory. Inventory is at 35-year lows over the summer. What does this mean for the fall? Is there going to be a big uptick in inventory like a lot of people are hoping uh, remains to be seen? And what does the buyer population look like? Anecdotally, it looks like it's going to be a busy, both with listings, new listings, and both with new buyers. So it's going to be a busy fall, I would guess. Well, you know, statistically, we've had two really, really low inventory months, July and August. And anecdotally, speaking to a good friend of the show, Josh Lasko, also a real estate photographer, that guy is like booking out a week and a half right now. I, yeah. He's, uh, no, I just booked something for Friday at like 9 yeah, p.m. or something. Yeah, it was exactly. crazy. No, I know. So so everybody is right now creating marketing materials, which to me suggests we're going to see a real influx of uh, new listings coming on in September. Good news for buyers that uh, right now, because the summer, it's, it's it just, felt like shopping for a uh, winter jacket in July, right? It's crazy. There's just nothing out there and, you know, stuff that doesn't seem, it's not bait prices. It's like priced correctly and it needs a lot of work and there's eight offers and it's going, they're going crazy. It's, well, it's just, you know, maybe that's part of where the market's headed, but I think it's more related to the fact that there's only one property for every 15 people looking. Yeah, exactly. But this will be an interesting final quarter. We've already made our predictions. It's going to be busy and it feels like things are ramping up. So definitely enjoy the long weekend take a deep breath and expect some inventory coming on in September. And, and if that wasn't good enough in terms of predictions, Brendan Augmanson. Oh yeah. The man, the man. Yeah. Go BCREA. back Go back chief economist BCREA. He's on next week. His predictions last time he was on the show, he's bang on. He was and bang he's, on. And he's got some big predictions for this last quarter and 2022. He's on next week, yeah. first week back after Labor Day. So stick around for that. Who better when you're coming out of the gates than Brendan? So this is this is going to be a phenomenal... When the CMHC gets it wrong, Brendan gets it right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, anyways, without further ado, I loved this conversation with Anne McAfee. I feel like we could have stayed on the line a lot longer. Actually, we took about an hour of her time. At least. And in fact, I was thinking this should have been like a three or four part series. And maybe we'll have her back if she's got the time. Absolutely. Well, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Anne McAfee. Okay, so we're here with Anne McAfee. How are you doing, Anne? I'm doing great. Thank you, Matt and Adam. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Anne, for for taking the time. Uh, we were trying to uh, figure out how to introduce you because your career is is long and, and very, very accomplished. Some of our listeners are going to know you for sure, but maybe can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I've been in Vancouver almost all my life. Our family came here in 1947. So effectively, I've seen the city change from what I would say as was an unspectacular city in a spectacular setting to at one point the world's most livable city. So it's been a great opportunity to watch my favorite city change over time. I went to UBC and uh, after graduating, thought I would be teaching planning, but thought, well, before I teach planning, maybe I should practice it just a little nothing like uh, an academic who's never actually been out of the classroom. So I joined the city of Vancouver as housing planner in 1974. And 
it was just a matter of a few days and I was sold on actually being part of the action rather than sitting on the sidelines and commenting on it. So I had basically three jobs with the city. I was housing planner for a time and that was helping co-ops and nonprofits. That was during the 1970s when CMHC, much like today, maybe not quite like today, had some funding available for co-op, nonprofit, and other kinds of affordable housing. So I was working with nonprofit groups to try and access city land and CMHC funds in order to build affordable housing. Some years we were doing about 2,000 units a year at that time of rent-to-income affordable housing. So really was great until the tap was turned off and the federal government got out of housing and my job switched at that time, and that was during the 80s and early 90s. I switched from working with uh, nonprofit groups to policy development, mostly citywide. The city hadn't had a plan, actually never had adopted a plan, although Bartholomew, which was done by a U.S. consulting firm, is often touted as Vancouver's first citywide plan. So council was looking for some kind of direction for what to do in the city, given some of the challenges the city was facing at that time. And the challenges were looking ahead, seeing that once the big brownfield sites, the North Shore, False Creek, Coal Harbor, had redeveloped, then where would we go? We could continue to redevelop industrial land east of downtown, but then where would the services be located for the downtown and for the port backup? Or start looking at those low-density single-family neighborhoods. Not only was council wondering about where development would happen next, much of the funding, the city has to balance its budget, its operating budget each year, and quite a lot of the funding which used to be available on senior governments, was pulled during the 1980s. That left the city saying, what services are we going to provide and how are we going to pay for them? So there was questions not only about where to build, but also how to pay for the services associated with the new developments. So I got to spend the 80s and early 90s working with a great team of people across City Hall, but also during the 1990s with over 100,000 residents of Vancouver who participated in looking at the city and saying, what should the city be like in the future? And that city plan process then led to the last 10 years of the city, which was once council had agreed to the new plan directions. The city at that time had no transportation plan, it had no industrial policy, it had no financing growth policy, a lot of issues around Metro Vancouver and how the city related to Metro. So I spent the last 10 of my 30 years with the city doing working across the organization and with the communities developing a variety of policies for the city. However, in 2006, all that fun came to an end 
Uh, <laughs> at that time, if you worked for government, you were required by law when you turned 65 to retire. So I retired, but my husband always puts that in quotation marks. Hmm. I immediately started consulting around the world. People were really interested in what we had done in Vancouver, how we did it, and had a great time before COVID traveling around, working with people in other parts of the world, and basically saying, well, this is how we did it. It may or may not work for you, but at least it'll start a conversation. Good fun until wings got clipped once COVID happened. I am currently on the Canadian Housing uh, Council, so National Housing Council, so that's kind of keeping me still in touch with what's happening across the country. Right, right. It's a phenomenal uh, career span, and and we're, we want to dig into a lot of that. But before we get to that end, can I'm just curious, why planning to begin with? Well, first, I didn't want to be a planner. I always figured here I would be doing all this research because I was a kind of policy wonk. I'd be doing all this research and then council would say, no, they wanted to go in another direction for some sort of unfathomable to me reason. But I'd already got degrees in geography and history and in my BA and MA. By the time I got to my PhD, I didn't want to go back to the same subjects. So I actually went and got a combined doctorate in urban land economics at UBC, the Sauter School, and city planning, thinking that at least the topic of cities was interesting and I could research it. But as I said, I never actually did become a university professor until after I retired from the city of Vancouver. But it's a topic which has always interested me because so many people are living in cities, will continue to live in cities, and I'd love the city that I grew up in. It was a different city than the city we have today, and certainly a different city than the one that we planned in during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But nevertheless, it was fascinating. I kind of wanted to know how it worked and why it worked, and could we make it better? You know, and just thinking about Vancouver, you know, we, we grew up in Winnipeg. Every city changes, but you, it, when I go back to Winnipeg, it feels fairly static in relation to, to how quickly and how dynamic Vancouver is. Seeing the city change over the course of, of not only your, your career, but I guess living here, why do you think Vancouver has changed so dramatically in relation to other Canadian cities over the last, say, 50 years? I think it's a combination. One of the key factors is that in some provinces, I'm thinking Ontario primarily, decisions by the city council could be, particularly land use decisions, could be appealed to the province. And the province then, so in a sense, was setting the directions for the city. Vancouver is a little different. As Vancouver has its own charter, and most of the years that I worked for the city, we seldom, if ever, had much contact with the provincial government. What it gave us in Vancouver was, so one of the two things 
we have the potential in Vancouver to be very nimble because the council can approve a new direction and doesn't, in most cases, have to go to the provincial government only if we need the charter legislation changed. But most decisions council can make, we can implement it the next day, we can monitor it and adjust it if it's not working. So it's very quick and nimble. Secondly, Vancouver just happened to be, during the 60s, a real hotbed of ideas. Maybe it was the warmer climate, who knows, but many people migrated here both from the U.S. because of, at that time, not wanting to be drafted in the Vietnam War. Other people came who were interested in the environment, conservation, sustainability, Greenpeace developed here. There was a lot happening, including people protesting things like the freeway. And I think it was those protests which set Vancouver on a course which wasn't your typical North American live in the suburbs and take your car on a freeway into downtown, rather with the freeway being stopped in the late 1960s, that meant when the new council, team council, came in in 1970s, they had to find other ways of having people living close to work. And that was the redevelopment of the brownfield sites. So not only were there the opportunities like the brownfield site, and a lot of people who were interested in trying new ideas, we also had that flexibility through the Vancouver Charter to actually try what was being discussed and thought of. And when, when people talk about the success of the city, but also kind of the roots of a lot of the growing pains and affordability crisis in the city, often they're, they're pointing at Expo 86. In your opinion, is Expo 86 uh, to blame? Is that, is that an accurate an accurate uh, starting point? Yeah, starting point to consider. I'm not sure it's to blame. Certainly, I mean, obviously I'm to blame. I was housing the first city's first housing planner and look at the mess that we ended up with. So obviously I didn't do a very good job <laughs> when I was housing planner in the 1970s. I think it's a combination of things. And yes, Expo 86 may have sort of waved a banner which said, you know, here's Vancouver. However, had the city then taken areas like the North Shore, False Creek, Coal Harbor, and not redeveloped them so that they were livable communities, would the city have been as successful? And I use successful with caution because on one hand, we were extremely livable, we actually were the world's most livable city at one point in the early 2000s. But at the same time, we're also a secure investment source. And so investors coming from elsewhere in the world see the livability as a secure place to park their money. I would say Expo 86 may have sort of opened the door a bit to that, I think, it was, however, what followed with all the redevelopment being very livable, very attractive to people, 
which then contributed to making the city a desirable place to come. Then, at the same time, I mean, look at what else was happening in the world. You've got a lot of people worrying about the turnover of Hong Kong in the 1990s. And with that turnover, if I was living somewhere else and wasn't sure what was going to happen in terms of a new takeover, I might look to take my money and try and invest it somewhere, which I thought was a little safer. So you can understand that. And if you look ahead at what's likely to happen in terms of climate change, there's going to be a lot of people in the hotter areas that are going to be hotter in the next 10, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, who are similarly going to be looking to areas like Vancouver, the northern parts of the United States and Canada, and saying these are areas where it will likely still be reasonably livable and safe. Let's move our money. So 86 may have been part of it, but if you go back to 1976, when the first World Urban Forum was held in Vancouver, that brought also a lot of people here looking at the potential of Vancouver. So it sounds like part of that, of course, is this, you know, waving the banner, but also essentially a victim of Vancouver being a victim of its own success in a lot of ways in in terms of planning ideas. You were the co-director with Larry Beasley um, of planning in with the, at the city of Vancouver in the, in the 90s. And we've had Larry on the show a few times talking about what was book Vancouverism and also just, um, you know, similar conversations like this. What in your mind did, well, actually, for our listeners, maybe can we remind everyone what the idea of Vancouverism is? And looking back, what do you think it got right? And and where did it go wrong, potentially, in your mind, if at all? Well, um, was it us that went wrong or did we do too well? (laughs) (laughs) Attractive. Uh, It might be we did too well and it became attractive, although I'll come back to what we did wrong in a moment. Vancouverism, if you read, Larry and I were co-directors of planning, and we had quite different responsibilities. Larry was primarily focused on the downtown and the actual redevelopment, negotiating with developers for the kind of building and services that were going into areas like Coal Harbor and North False Creek. My role was slightly different. Actually, in my early years with the city as housing planner, I'd been working downtown and doing quite a lot of the analysis for the south shore of False Creek and looking at the economics of the north shore of False Creek and what the city could or should be requiring developers to provide services and what sort of services and how much and what kind of housing and how much for what income groups. So quite a lot of my early work was in the downtown. But by the time we get into Larry's book and Vancouverism, he's quite a lot about the design of Vancouver and particularly the kind of design in the downtown. What Larry's book doesn't cover, and I think it's another critical part of Vancouverism, is behind all of the plans 
that came out was a lot of analysis. And I know when Larry was putting his book together, he sort of said, well, you know, what should we cover? And I said, well, you know, we've done a lot of analysis. We didn't make a lot of mistakes because in most cases we'd tried out uh, some of the different ideas. We'd looked at the economics of those ideas. We'd looked at the social implications of the ideas and things that might not work, we didn't pursue. So in part, uh, Vancouverism on the surface is about the kind of design of the city. Underneath it is a lot of economic and social analysis of what's going to work. Let me give you an example. When the early decisions around adding more housing, once you stop the freeway, you have to do something to have people living close to where they work or getting to work. And then easiest to do by having people live close to where they work. But and council at the time, in the 1970s, said, we want to have the downtown, not just people who are older or sort of the young swingers, we want to have families with children. And the question was, can you design at high densities for families with children? So in the 1970s, group of us did a lot of consumer behavior. We were talking with people who were actually living in a variety of kinds of families in affordable or in public housing, which is what it was called at that time. What worked, what didn't work? Could we actually design, and around the world at that time, particularly in the United States, well, in part, nobody was building downtown because the downtown cities in the 60s and 70s were in flames with the um, uh, problems of Black Lives Matter in that day and also the problems of the Vietnam protests. So we couldn't look anywhere else. And what we did was actually sit down with architects, finance people, quantity surveyors, and people who were living in, as families in various kinds of public housing to say, what do you need? What do you want? Can we push the densities beyond sort of six to eight to even 15 units per acre, which was what was typically available for families at that time? And we found we could push up into 80s, 90s, 100 units per acre and have it work for families with children, provided that it was a small enclave of, say, 30 or so families at the maximum, other than a large project of families, low-income families. It was a small project of low-income families. So all that analysis meant that when we got to designing both the south and then the north shore of False Creek, we'd studied what could happen. We'd worked with the users. We'd worked to architects to see how to design. We'd worked with quantity surveyors to say, what are some of these ideas going to cost? Is the market going to be able to deliver? And we continued to review how plans were working. So to me, Vancouverism, two things. It's one, an underlay of analysis as to what some of the social and economic consequences are of the plans, 
Then secondly, it's the actually making that happen with the sort of negotiation with the private sector. And Larry's book is more about, I think, the negotiation with the private sector than it is necessarily about the underpinnings that on the finance side and the consumer user side. And one thing that strikes me uh, about your, your last answer is, you know, we're talking about a moment in time where in the U.S. at least and, and across Canada, everyone else is doing sprawl in the, the 60s, 70s. You know, inner cities are, are places that people are fleeing or have long fled. And yet you guys were thinking about density and, and how to kind of reshape the downtown. And it seems like, you know, if everybody's zigging, Vancouver at that time was zagging. Can you talk a, a little bit about why you folks were thinking about density when everyone else was thinking about sprawl? I think it was in large measure a result of the group of people in team who got on council in the early 1970s. And most of those folks had been part of the protests against the freeway going through Chinatown and into downtown Vancouver. So they're part of the protests against a freeway. And secondly, several of those councillors Walter Hardwick, particularly, who often gets less credit than he should for thinking ahead of a new type of inner city. And I was a student of Walter's back in the 1960s. And at that time, he was talking about seeing the downtown and seeing some of those industrial areas redevelop into housing. So it had been part on his mind for quite some time. Seti Bantikar was a planner, and I think it was that council had some ideas, and then they basically turned to staff who were, we were all young, keen, eager, and said, this is the kind of city we want, you know, you figure out how to deliver it. So we had council that was thinking of new kinds of inner cities. And not only that first council in the 1970s, but going right through to about 2006, while different councils came and went, they all, and some of them were more left-wing, some of them were more right-wing, they all kept some of the same values about encouraging more development near jobs which is downtown, no freeways, engaging the public in talking about the future of the city, and looking at how we fund services. So many similar themes carried on over the years, regardless of who was in council. I think this is an important point for Vancouver because had the ideas of changing and coming up with a new form of inner city been a one-shot council, it would have never happened. But it was a continuing theme of many councillors over many years. So council basically said, and I remember sitting in the mayor's office and having a discussion and him saying, all right, we need to figure out how to have families with children living in the inner city. Go figure it out. And it was the support of ideas that councils gave but also not everything we proposed worked. And 
some of the economics that we initially thought would happen on the North Shore of False Creek didn't play out. But we just rethought it. And council said, all right, that didn't work. We'll try again. Very close links between council and staff at, through those years. We were in workshops all the time with council. And I know that the lawyers say this is not something that should be happening at the municipal level. Somehow the feds and the province can talk to their staff with immunity, but at the local level, we're expected to have everything public. Well, a lot of the discussions were just workshops, workshops with council and staff. As ideas came around the table, tried out those ideas, staff went away and did some work, came back, tried the ideas out. So I think in part, we came up with a new kind of inner city because there was the combination of creative counselors who were willing to try something different. And some had been thinking of that different, like Walter Hardwick, for many years. And we had, as a city, a charter which allowed us to experiment and try different ideas to see if they worked. You know, I don't think there's one person listening that would think of that period as not wildly successful. And I think we've almost established almost in some respects too successful. But in thinking back, you know, um, I guess you have quite a bit of time has lapsed. Do you, maybe not what did you get wrong, but more regrets, something that you wished would have happened at that time that might have changed the course of Vancouver in, in some way? I don't think my big regrets are back in the 70s or even the 80s for that matter. I think my big regrets happened during the late 1990s, early 2000s. And what had happened in the mid-1990s when it was clear that there were no further industrial lands that were likely going to be redevelopable. By that time, False Creek was well under its under the way and so was Coal Harbor. And the question was, if we went into East False Creek, which some people were pushing, some others of us were saying, no, where are we going to service the downtown? Where are you going to store your taxis at night if you redevelop that to housing? Where are you going to have your laundry wash? Where are you going to buy produce for the restaurants in the downtown? Where are you going to have the port backup if you redevelop all the east end of False Creek into housing? So council said, you know, there's a legitimate question to talk to the community about. We tried a plan in the early 1980s where staff went away and did the plan came to council with the plan. Council said, look, sensible. We'll take a few areas of old industry that are scattered in the single-family areas, like the Arbutus Brewery site, and we'll redevelop that. Well, we hadn't involved the public. And as soon as council started to proceed with redeveloping the Arbutus lands, the community got up and in big protests said, why weren't we involved? Not in our neighborhood. It was nimby, nimby, nimby. So what that led to, and this 
will get me, you, me to where my biggest regret is. What that led us to was Gordon Campbell at the time was mayor. And Gordon actually probably doesn't get the recognition he was due for some very creative directions to staff to develop a city plan which effectively had the community walking in council's shoes or with council to see some of the challenges facing the city. And over two or three years, the city involved over 100,000 people. These were real people coming to real events. It was just before the web, and you had to actually be a real person going to a real event, fill out a real (laughs) survey. And out of all of that discussion, the city came up with a lot of directions about funding and governance and other topics. But one of the big directions was that people having debated whether to leave the low-density neighborhoods the way they were or add growth in those neighborhoods, or would we drop the drawbridge and send the development out to the um, outside the city of Vancouver, or would we continue to develop industrial lands? So where would new development go? The industrial lands, the outside the city, or in the low-density neighborhoods? And that process started with, I would say, almost everybody saying not in those low-density neighborhoods, at least people living in those neighborhoods were saying that. By the end of a couple of years of looking at the pros and cons of where development would happen, it actually had 80% of those 100,000 participants willing to support adding more housing in those lower-density neighborhoods. And what my big regret was, having got that broad public support for adding more housing, most people were supportive of having neighborhood centers, as we called them, or as they called them, where you had quite high-density development around cores, a variety of infill type of development through the rest of the single-family areas. It took too long to work with neighborhoods to come up with the actual plans for rezoning. What we did was to say to neighborhoods, you should do a broad vision for what will happen in your neighborhood, and then we'll work with you, the city and the community will work together to actually design the housing and services that will go into the neighborhood. It took about 10 years to do those area plans. And during that 10 years, two things happened. One was that many of the, I mean, the community changes, people forget. So some of that commitment increased densities in the lower density areas was waning. And at the time, the mayor of the day, this was in 2006, Sam Sullivan, was wanting to see more action faster. And he basically came up with his, what he called, eco-density plan, which had every street being redeveloped for um, higher density housing. The communities all said, where did this plan come from? What happened to our plan with our neighborhood centers? And the communities went back into NIMBY mode, accepting 
we had actually worked staff council and the development industry in the Knight and Kingsway area, King Edward Village area, where the community had wanted to have a neighborhood center. There was an old Safeway site that was a pawn shop by that time. And the community had negotiated with the developer to come up with a new library in the bottom of that building. The community supported quite high-density housing. I mean, there's a big high-rise at the corner of Knight and Kingsway. And rezoning the whole neighborhood around it for a mixture of townhouses, row houses, infill of different kinds. That all got approved. But if I have a regret with two things, one was it took too long to get to those actual neighborhood center rezonings. And secondly, because the community had been so involved in the plans I wasn't somebody who was about to stand up and say, this is my vision or, you know, this is what I've done. Cheer me, clap, clap, clap on the back. So we prob- I probably wasn't communicating well enough as to what was actually happening in that night in Kingsway area and how the community was coming together to say yes in my backyard. But the whole new process was working. Took too long to get to that point. I wouldn't have even done the neighborhood visions. I would have gone into each neighborhood and focused more on finding the neighborhood center and getting the rezonings done, saving that 10 years of time, focusing that 10 years on to actually getting the new zoning in those neighborhoods, making more efficient and effective use of the services that were already in those neighborhoods, getting the change happening, and That way, we wouldn't see what happened in 2006, 2008, when a new council came in. um, The community was back on its NIMBY because they hadn't been listened to and their neighborhood plans hadn't been fully developed. So if I have a regret, is that sometimes planning takes too long, too involved, and doesn't get to making those major changes at a time when, in this case, the community was ready to make those changes. Are we seeing that today, Anne? Seeing which today? The, 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 the same kind of maybe clunkiness. Gridlock. <laughs> gridlock of kind of a too engaged process? Well, I'm not sure the process is... They're too engaged in different ways. One way is the city gets very involved in negotiating every redevelopment, which is your conditional zoning, or each development goes through a rezoning, as opposed to outright zoning and taking a large area and outright zoning it for new development. So I think, yes, it's too clunky if, particularly in neighborhoods where you're looking at making townhouses, row houses, a variety of, I'm not just talking about laneways, cottages. I mean, that's very gentle infill, so gentle, nothing much will change. I'm talking about more townhouses, row houses, low-rise apartments, things that people were willing to consider in their neighborhood, provided they got to direct where the 
development cost levies and community amenity contributions went, what services were going to go in their neighborhood. So I think that's clunky that way. On the other hand, because in part two things have happened, the broad community isn't actually as engaged as it was during the city plan process in the 90s. This is COVID. You couldn't get together. But secondly, even before COVID, so many of the planning processes have started to use the web. Great. Everybody gets access to information. But on the other hand, people don't get to face each other and say, you know, this is what I'd like to see. And somebody else says, well, I don't. And they negotiate it out. During city plan, we actually found that in neighborhoods, there were three kinds of sort of groups of people. There were homeowners who had no intention of moving at the moment. They were happy where they were at this moment in time and sort of said, don't change my neighborhood. And that included people who had recently finally managed to buy a home in the neighborhood and didn't want to lose any of the investment that they'd put into their property. But there was also, and those are the people you tend to hear at public hearings. Uh, Then what we found was that there was another group of people who were elderly and looking for alternate housing in their neighborhood. They wanted to stay in their familiar neighborhood, but their single family home was getting too large, too much to maintain. In the early 90s, they were coming to the mayor and council and saying, can we see more different kinds of housing in the neighborhood so we can stay in our familiar neighborhood? They didn't tend to be the people who stood up at public hearings and said, not in my neighborhood. But they were clearly a group of people who are still there, just that they're a little older now or other people have aged into that group. They're people who are saying they want to see a variety of housing in the neighborhood. And then there's a third group who are saying we'd love to get into family housing, but either can't afford it, and we certainly, there isn't a choice of the kind of family housing. We have to go all the way to a single family home. There's no um, townhouses, row houses. So the interesting thing was that you had different needs of people. So when you ask, you know, are we too clunky in our public process at the moment? We're probably not clunky enough in some of the major changes because just filling in a survey doesn't make you face the reality of other people's needs or thinking about what your own needs might be in five years' time, 10 years' time. In the city plan process in the 90s, those people from those different constituencies in the low-density neighborhoods talked to each other. They had to sort of duke out what the neighborhood would be like. And out of that came an agreement that we'd like to see more kinds of housing, choice of housing in the neighborhood. So, yes, a process can be clunky because every development is negotiated on a one-on-one basis, in part because that's the way to get the community amenity contribution money, which is needed to provide services to go into the area. On the other hand, the only people who come out to speak to change in neighborhoods tend, we found in city plan, not to be reflective of the broader community. So 
there's a challenge when you're doing two things. You're doing site-by-site negotiations and you're not engaging the broad community having to face each other in their needs. I think the fact that so much of the progress and public input has been happening online even before COVID meant that you really didn't get people facing other people with other needs and thinking this may be me in a few years' time. That, that's really interesting, the kind of technological aspect to that. I feel like that's a part of a larger trend of kind of isolation and uh, inability to uh, politically or otherwise um, speak to your neighbors. In fact, it was interesting that after the whole eco-density idea emerged, and I just retired from the city at in that point, after that came forward and the community sort of said, what happened to our plan? It was interesting to notice when new developments were being proposed that some of the people who had been self-appointed community advocates before the city plan process, they reappeared purporting to speak on behalf of the community. And while they are a perspective, perspective in the community, we found out in city plan, we're not the majority. And I was reading recently a poll which looked at and said that about 71% of people who live in these low density neighborhoods are willing to consider more choice of housing in the neighborhoods. It's fine to realize that in theory, a large number of people are willing to accept change in their neighborhood until it happens next door to them, then they're not so fine about it unless they are able to sit down, look at some of the funds that come out of that new development, and then direct where that funding is going to go to new services in their community. And so I think it's a combination of people being able to speak directly to other people with other ideas, and secondly, to negotiate with developers, discuss with developers what they're going to offer the community in return for change. And it was that's what we found in, uh, Ken, in uh, Knight and Kingsway, right. that, that it was having the community focus its attention on this is the kind of money or space on the bottom floor in this case that could either go to money to a community center fix up or fix the library. The community said to the city, let's put a new library, use the space in the bottom of the high rise. The library moved into that space. The community said, good, we got something out of this. And the development proceeded We went to public hearing on some of the changes in that Knight and Kingsway area, both in the center and around the neighborhood. And it was a February, it was a rainy night, and about 70 people showed up. And as staff, I remember thinking, what did we do wrong? Because people don't come to a public hearing on a rainy night unless they want to protest. And two people spoke and they supported the developments that were going in and the new library. And the mayor said, you know, anyone else, anyone else, anyone else? Nobody 
wanted to speak, council approved not only the high-rise developments, but also all of the development around that site, which was uh, the options for people to put in townhouses, row houses uh, in their neighborhood. And the community erupted. They were cheering. They were throwing confetti. They were bursting balloons. This is a community supporting a variety of change in their neighborhood, provided they'd been part of the process and part of deciding how the community was going to benefit. It was a wonderful time, you know, perfect time to retire from the city. How could you do any better? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe shifting gears here a little bit, Anne, um, there's the new Metro 2050 report that that came out quite recently, suggesting that we're going to see about a million, well, one million new residents uh, in the Metro Vancouver area by 2050. What in your mind are some of the major challenges we'll have to deal with to accommodate uh, this influx of new residents? Well, first, I should say that during my years at the city, I did represent the city on the regional technical, what was then the technical planning committee. So had to get pretty involved in the relationship between the city and the region. And I probably didn't say for your listeners that I actually live in Coquitlam. So I'm living through the experience of what's happening to change in the suburbs. And I think the region, Metro, has done, and all the municipalities have done a very good job, for the most part, in locating new development around some of these transit-oriented sites. The kind of development that's going on in uh, Brentwood, in Lougheed Mall, in Burquitlam, in um, uh, Metro Town. I haven't found anywhere that compared, as I've traveled and worked in other cities, in U.S. and in Australia, New Zealand, uh, similar cities just have not had that kind of scale of development that's underway. So I think the Metro plan is doing and is heading in a direction which is putting a lot of new development right on transit. What surprises me about the new Metro plan is that it's probably being too respectful of Vancouver city itself. What makes Vancouver an attractive place to live is that it's close to jobs, it's close to downtown, it's close to a lot of amenities, and yet the plans for how much development in the future will go in the city of Vancouver I think are undershooting the mark. And the more we're building in areas like um, around Lougheed Mall and Burquitlam, that area is gearing up to take the population of the West End. But there simply aren't the amenities there. Other than rapid transit, there's not the beaches, the park, Although at the moment, I'm not sure Stanley Park is available to people. It seems to be the 
den of coyotes, <laughs> yeah. uh, which you know is ridiculous considering how many people use that as their backyard. <laughs> but I think the challenge with many of these town centers is that they don't necessarily have the amenities. So while we're doing a good job in locating on transit-oriented development, I think we could do a better job of using, as well, um, doing a better job of using some of the amenities that already exist. And many of those amenities, such as beaches, parks, exist in the city of Vancouver. And with the opportunity for biking, transit, short trips from the west side of Vancouver into downtown, into jobs, particularly the new jobs that are happening in high tech around the east end of False Creek. I think my biggest concern with Metro 2050 as the draft is evolving is that we're probably not walking the talk as much as we could about developing where there are amenities and minimizing some of the sprawl. That's interesting. Do you think, so we've, we've had people from the development community on in the past talking about Berquitlam and Brentwood and, and a lot of folks seem to be suggesting that there's kind of a shift towards Burnaby being the center of the region in a way that it, it wasn't before, almost a shift east. It sounds more like the way you're conceptualizing this is, is that this is, you know, basically suburban towers with the center still firmly in Vancouver and the in amenity-rich Vancouver where, where people are kind of, you know, I guess riding public transit as opposed to, as opposed to cars for the most part, but but not fundamentally shifting kind of the, the, the nature of the region? I think the nature of the region has to shift in two ways. One way is continuing this transit-oriented development with the caution in my mind that many of those areas, and you know, I know Brentwood quite well, and I certainly, because I live near um, Berquitlam and Lougheed Mall, there's just not the amenities there. And so the question is, keep doing that. Clearly, growth is going to be shifting. It's going to continue to concentrate, particularly if development happens along, continues to develop in Surrey along the transit lines. But don't neglect the fact that there are a lot of amenities making for more livable, complete communities where you're closer to the beaches, where you're closer to the parks. And that's in Vancouver. Right. What is your take on uh, the, the various federal parties' housing policies in this upcoming election? Proposals. <laughs> or proposals, we should <laughs> proposals. say. Proposals. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been sort of watching with interest since I'm sitting on the National Housing Council and clearly, I don't know, at the end of the day, depends who gets elected as to whether or not the council continues, or if it does continue, whether the people who are on it are going to change. Frankly, I haven't seen anything from the parties that aren't in power that looks realistic in terms of actually delivering. 
it's fine to say, I'm going to do a million houses in this period of time. But parties have been saying that for years. And at the end of the day, for the people who are sort of lower middle income to lower income, the working poor, as we would now call them, many of the people who are in service jobs, the private market is not going to be able to provide housing that meets their needs in terms of affordability. I look at some of the developments that are going in using federal loans and existing federal programs, and those units, in many cases, the developer is touting that there's going to be rents at 80% of market rental. Well, 80% of market rental, if you're a cleaning person in the downtown, is not affordable. So I haven't seen anything from any of the parties which suggest how they're going to find the money or allocate the money which is going to provide housing for those folks who are a major part of keeping our cities functioning, the service workers, the uh, entertainment industry, the food service industry. They're part of making a city work. They're the kind of people who the initial plans for Falls Creek, particularly the south shore of Falls Creek, wanted to ensure that there were opportunities for those folks who keep the downtown vibrant to live somewhere near their work. I haven't heard anything from any of the parties that suggest a major initiative or how we're going to pay for it. In fact, I haven't heard anything from any of the parties about how they're going to pay other than increasing taxes, which they're not talking about, or alternatively, what is going to be dropped in the way of existing programs in order to pay for the new programs. Mm -hmm. So until I see something about where the funding is going to actually come from, I haven't seen anything which I say, yes, that's going to be a solution to the housing problem. You know, maybe as a as a final question, Anne, just thinking about your tenure in the seventies with the city of Vancouver and and the South Shore of False Creek, and and at least as I understand it, the kind of role of the federal government at that time, and you know the 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 goal of affordable housing and and I guess co op housing and and all the rest. In your mind, can federal politics solve Metro Vancouver's housing crisis? Or, or I guess in, in other ways, what's the best way they can, they can help at this point? One of the, well, there's two challenges here. One of them, there's a lot of challenges, but two come to mind. One is that because the cities have to balance the budget, they can't offer housing assistance other than making some existing city land available there's minimum that the city can do. On the other hand, the federal government and the provincial government have the ability to collect more revenue. 
the question is two things. Do you leave it to the federal and provincial governments to allocate funding to cities across the country to help them with the affordable housing issue? Or do you change the way funding is collected and distributed to give particularly the larger cities more opportunity to get revenue, in other words, shift some of the revenue which now goes to federal and provincial governments to cities. Either way, it's a matter of the number of people who are in various kinds of needs, and that's not just affordability, that's also families needing family-designed housing, people with a variety of needs for adaptive housing. And I think that you either have to decide the federal and provincial roles and they're going to give sufficient money or you turn the money over and give more revenue generating capacity to cities. Either way, I haven't seen any discussion happening about how all of the costs which have been allocated to get us through the pandemic are going to eventually be repaid other than possibly the NDP comments, which is tax the wealthy. I've got a bit of a wonder about that because I suspect the ultra-rich have enough ability to hire people to manage their money so they're not paying full taxes on it. So does that mean the sort of remainder, small as it is, of the middle income people are going to be paying? So to answer the question, I think that you're going to be looking in the next while at making at every level of government some tough choices about who gets the revenue and how it's spent and how the debt we've accumulated at all levels of government, most recently for COVID, is going to be repaid. And until we start to sort out that bigger issue, I think it's going to be very tough for any city to seriously address the questions of affordable housing and support services. Well, maybe we'll leave it there, but and thank you so much for your time today. And and how can our listeners find out more about what you're up to? Well, I'm not sure what I'm up to at the moment <laughs> <laughs> that they can they can get on to, um, because my book isn't written yet about how Vancouver uh, developed the 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 sort of policy side of what we did during those years. I've got a lot of boxes full of material. It's just a matter of deciding I want to settle down and write it, which would be, in a sense, a, the, the other side of the Larry story, the John Punter story of the design side. This would be more the economic and analytical side of what Vancouver did. But right now, as I say, I'm retired. I'm mostly working with the National Housing Council, and the only place that any of my material is on is something called ResearchGate, 
And over the years, this was what I did during the city years, most of the reports I wrote, and I gave a lot of presentations during the 70s and early 80s. Every week, there was something what McAfee had to say about housing uh, in the newspapers. So a lot of that is actually on something called ResearchGate, but it's not a current. Current, it's in my head. Well, we're waiting for the book. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank, thanks so much for your time. That was a fascinating conversation. Um, yeah, we'd love to have you back. I feel like there's a, there's a lot more to unpack, but uh, it's only so much time in the day. So thanks, Anne, so much for your time. You're most welcome. Enjoyed having the chat. So there you have it, our conversation with Dr. Ann McAfee. Really enjoyed that chat, Matt, and uh, so well-spoken. We apologize for the audio at moments, specifically in the first half of that conversation. Um, We were having a connection on the line, but we didn't want to lose Ann's thoughts because uh, it's so well-rounded, so thoughtful. One thing that that strikes me about, you know, just the way that Ann outlines kind of her answers and her thought process She's talking about writing a book. She, again, we've said this about, I feel like we've said this about a couple people, uh, Dustin Woodhouse, uh, Tom Davidoff, people that are like the late Christopher Hitchens, where they just, they can, you almost can hear them writing like a flawless chapter. Some of those answers to me were outlined so well and so well thought out. You'd think she had the questions in advance. She did not. No. It was like she, they felt like chapters in a book. Well, it's, it's interesting because a couple of things. One is uh, when, first of all, when you're there, like we're as transplants to the city of Vancouver and then also as people that are looking back on kind of the, the you know, the, the historical trajectory of the city, we're, we're piecing it together. Kind of story by story, right? Exactly. And actually, not only did she live through it, but then she went around the world talking about it and talking about how the process unfolded. And really, she's talking about how Vancouver got to where where it is today. That's right. Man, there's not many people that can speak with the authority. Larry Beasley. And McAfee, that's for sure. <laughs> Maybe Larry Beasley. But Maybe. they were co-directors. This is uh, this is the reason it's so entertaining. What else do we got for today before we cut for the week? What do we have? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for all things real estate related. We have the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. That's yes. where that lives. And all things residential real estate. We have things like the Live Wire. This is VIP access to pre-sales in the residential and commercial space. We got deal of the month. We have episodes coming out, stats before anyone else. There's no reason you don't want to be on the live wire. We also have, and this is ideal for a market shifting, I would say, into a busy fall, private client services. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It's all available at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And as you just said, what a time to get set up on a research tool like this because you will see the new inventory when it hits. And uh, it's really easy to sift through listings. And this is what I... I often find challenging with other search engines is going back and did I see this? Did I not see this? Having a portal that lays it all out, that allows you to add it to your favorites folder, that allows you to remove it from your list. 
People that like to stay organized love this research tool, and there's just really no better way to kind of monitor the market. It, it, it organizes for you. Yeah. And if you're a real spreadsheet person, turn the podcast off right now and uh, go home. But if you're, uh, if you're, I'm just kidding. But if you if you like to stay organized, it is a great resource for sure. Absolutely. If you want to talk about that or anything else, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And, and just a a few things. One is a lot of people really excited about this whole zero to Kokomo thing. We really focused in on it on the summer. We have a couple guests coming on that are specific Kokomo people. So we are going to be interspersing zero to Kokomo episodes throughout this fall. So don't fear uh, about that. And just one other reminder, Brendan Ogmanson, this guy's got it right in the past. He's the chief economist for BCREA. He's on the show next week. Have a great long weekend, but be sure to tune in for Brendan Augmentson next week. It's going to be a banger. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join. 
type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join typing in VRP 2020.